Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined by an old friend of mine, David Miliband. David will be well known to UK audiences for his role in politics, former foreign secretary. But now, David, you're CEO of the International Rescue Committee. So let's start by, tell us what that organisation does and and how you're spending your time in the face of this pandemic. Hi, Matthew. Lovely to hear your voice and great to be in this conversation. So the International Rescue Committee was founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s to rescue Jews from Europe, bring them to America. It's headquartered in New York and it's now a global humanitarian charity working in 200 field sites with about 14,000 employees and 17, 18,000 auxiliary workers delivering health, education, protection for women and girls, a livelihood support in the world's war zones, but also for those people who are displaced, whose lives are shattered by conflict and uh, persecution. And so this is a time of enormous professional mobilization for the organization. But obviously, it's also a time of uh, personal disruption for every one of the workforce. I've uh, moved out of New York with my family. We've rented a small uh, cottage in northwestern Connecticut uh, for reasons in partly of safety, but also, to be absolutely honest, sanity. With two kids and an apartment, you want to you begin to wonder whether you're going to go stir crazy. So we're a bit less likely to go stir crazy. Although I have to tell you, if I look out of the window from this um, little attic that I'm in, attic bedroom, it's snowing this morning in northwest Connecticut. Not heavily, but it is snowing. I hear the headlines about the sun in the UK. It, it raises my eyebrows. Yeah, it's a tremendous contrast. I'm sitting here staring out of the window. It's 77 degrees in in Clapham. But that notion of, of contrast, I mean, I, I've spoken to several people doing podcasts and other events for the RSA. And, you know, it is clear that your experience of this pandemic, your personal experience varies enormously. Those of us who are lucky enough to have nice places, maybe a, a bit of garden uh, our work, we can carry on uh, in these circumstances. It's so different from the experience of people who don't have those privileges. Do you think that you know one of the challenges of the pandemic is is to continuously have the imagination to think about how different it is 
for the people who find life most difficult in these circumstances? Well, I think there's another contrast, actually, which is that this is a time of enormous shared experience on the one hand. I mean, when I do a country call with our team in Cameroon, uh, and I'm talking to the country director or the measurement coordinator or the gender advisor, they've got their kids running around downstairs as well. So that's the shared experience. And with 90% of the world's kids now at home, that's uh, led to a shared experience. You can probably hear some other shared experience from downstairs at the moment. Now, on the other hand, you're absolutely right that within cities, uh, the inequalities are very potent in explaining the different way in which the disease hits different populations. New York's numbers are obviously huge, but they are very unequal as well. And globally, uh, the inequality is just profound. I mean, we put out a report about how there are three ventilators in the whole of Central African Republic, one in Sierra Leone, actually another report says there are 14 in Sierra Leone, uh, very small numbers. And then the densities in places like Cox's Bazaar in uh, Bangladesh, where there are a million Rohingya who we serve, uh, in Idlib, northwest Syria, where we're working, uh, the densities speak to uh, incredible trauma and the potential for absolute carnage when the disease spreads. I want to ask you the question we ask every guest on this podcast, but let me just say before that, because I don't want to forget this. David, if people listening to you and listening in particular to the challenges that an organisation like yours is having working in the face of this pandemic, if they want to help, if they want to make a donation, where, where would you suggest that they would go to do that? Yeah, I'd love them to go to uh, rescue.org or rescue-uk.org, learn about what we're doing, meet our staff and see how they can make a difference. Because the appeal I would make is that although the numbers that we serve are huge, the window of opportunity to make a difference is now, is now because uh, there is this fluke that in the places where, where we work, the disease has not yet hit with full virulence, either because of the weather or because of the youthfulness, relatively speaking, of the populations in the fragile states around the world, much younger than in the West. Uh, we've got this chance to do more preventative work, to get the hand washing stations, to do the triaging and fever testing. And I'd urge people really to learn about that and to see how they can make a difference. Thanks for that, David. So uh, here's the question that we're asking everybody. David, how do you think the world could and should change after the pandemic? Well, it could change in a very dystopian way. It could change in, in a nationalist, xenophobic, anti-internationalist way. It could change in a anti-democratic way. I'm worried about that. It could change relatedly in an anti-egalitarian way. How should it change? It should change to recognise that we're all connected and that the scale of inequality is a source of instability and insecurity for all of us. And so it seems to me that this is a crisis of the connected world, the hyper-connected world. And the way it should change, the way the world should change, is to recognize not just local responsibility, but also global responsibility. And it's so um, humbling, in a way, to see 750,000 British people volunteer for the National Health Service, uh, to see that sense of social solidarity that you talked about in your podcast with Jeff Mulgan. Uh, but it's also important to, to recognize that there's a potentially very dark side of this, which is that the trends over the last decade for borders to become walls, uh, for walls to become divisions for divisions to become the source of demonization, that dystopian future is a real and present danger. So that contrast between two possibilities, 
The critical question then is, what is it that will determine whether we emerge from this, possibly after an extended kind of transitional period, with a positive or a negative trajectory? Now, my thinking about this, David, is that there are three conditions that determine whether a crisis changes the world. The first is there has to be an underlying reason for change, an underlying underlying capacity for change, which pre-exists the crisis. Secondly, the crisis needs to reinforce the case for change, but also in some ways prefigure certain practices, innovations, attitudes, prefigure the new world that you want. And then thirdly, critically, at the point at which you emerge, when you know the Overton window is wider, as it were, you have the political alliances and the practical suggestions, policy suggestions, social innovations, institutional innovations to capitalise on that on that moment. Looking at that kind of way of thinking about change, does that lead you to be optimistic about coming out of this the right way? Well, that's a very interesting and profound way of uh, working through it. I wish you'd given me that as homework to think about before I um, went on this podcast, because it's definitely very well uh, thought through. I mean, the obvious point is you look at political leadership today and uh, not political alliance, but political fragmentation. I mean, the group of seven leading industrialized democracies couldn't even agree a statement on COVID because the US administration wanted to do an absolutely pointless name calling uh, over the calling it the Wuhan virus, not the COVID virus. So some of the most important political alliances in the world among democratic countries are in disarray. Um, Europe is in uh, finding it very difficult. The European Union has never really had a public health role of any serious kind. So I don't think if you look at your three factors, you can't read off that uh, an optimistic view. Um, I have uh, uh, My narrative would be slightly different, that the conditions for global change, they also involve three things because like you, I like lists, or at least it helps me remember them. But the three things that I always look for and always talk about in terms of social change, they're the following. And they don't take you in an automatically optimistic direction, to use your word, but they give a different framing. I think big social, economic, uh, political uh, change happens when three factors come together. One is government leadership. Uh, The second is business and civil society innovation. And the third is mass mobilization. And they don't necessarily come in that order. We're living at a time when government leadership is in many ways in retreat from big global problems, although I want to come back to that point in a minute because I think there may be a change. I, in the NGO sector, working in the NGO sector, look to business and NGOs, and I'm unlikely pairing in a way, to help do the kind of prefiguring of what kind of global social contract could sustain and tackle the injustices and inequalities and insecurities of globalization and make it more sustainable. And I think that there are some of the ideas and the alliances that could help make that happen. Now, I just want to add one uh, rider or caveat to that, which is that we're clearly living at a time when the traditional leaders of global agenda setting uh, in the Western world are in retreat. Uh, But this may turn out to be the moment when the Chinese government decide, both for their own domestic reasons, or above all for their own domestic reasons, but also as an international play, that it's time for them to make a big push onto the international scene. And so we could see a trend that has been integral to the changing shape of the world over the last 20 years, which is the growing importance of China. I saw a reference in a paper the other day to the idea that, uh, will the Chinese launch their own version of the Marshall Plan? 
What conditions will there be attached to it? How will it try and reinforce the anti-democratic tendencies of their own country and export them? And I think that that question of government leadership doesn't is very open at this point. I think that if there is to be an optimistic outcome from this uh, crisis, it's going to have to be led uh, from outside Western governments at the moment because they're not in a position to really uh, provide the kind of leadership or they're not of the mindset to provide the leadership that's necessary. I just think there's one other thing which I want to put to you and see whether you uh, agree. One version of the future says that this uh, crisis is like uh, the Great Depression, and out of it comes one answer because um, it's obvious what what works. And in in the case of the Great Depression, it was some version of the Keynesian welfare state. I'm wondering whether this crisis isn't going to be striking for the different ways that different countries operate. Uh, There's a European contrast, obviously, Germany on one side, UK on the other. But there's a global contrast too: US, China, but also US, Taiwan, US, Singapore. And I wonder if in the um, innards of this crisis, there's not going to be a lot of uh, contrast between the way different countries have approached it, uh, different successes, uh, and different lessons drawn. That's very interesting. Certainly one of the things that Jeff Mulgan and I were talking about in that earlier podcast was, will people want to learn lessons from those countries that seem to have got it right? Will they recognise the importance of an effective state? Will they recognise the importance of trust in government? But also, will they learn other lessons? I mean, will citizens be more willing to have their own personal data opened up to the government in times of emergency, which is one of the components in South Korea. So I think that's certainly there's going to be a lot of learning, but also some quite determined attempts to resist uh, uh, learning and try to learn the wrong lessons. I think any of us who can think about history and politics, Dave, we, we recognise that, that it's always a story of kind of structure and determinism on the one hand, but also contingency and accident on the other. These things always go together. And so to take two moments, I mean, I remember living through the... AIDS crisis. And actually, in the early stages, it really wasn't clear what was going to happen. It felt as though it could be that the gay community would retreat. They were under siege. Many gay people at that stage were still kind of in the closet, as it were. And it could have been the case that governments would have thought the best thing to do with this was to blame those groups that that had the highest uh, incidence of HIV and AIDS. Instead, there was a kind of moment. And in that moment, the gay community fought back came out of the closet, or not everybody, but kind of collectively, and governments decided that the priority was public health. And that meant telling people the truth, giving information to everybody, not scapegoating. And that then created an environment not only for kind of cure, behaviour change, but also ultimately for, for, for changes to the law in relation to gay and lesbian uh, people. I contrast that with a different moment. When we came out of 2007, 2008, out of the financial crisis, many people on the left said, well, you know, this is a moment when progressive ideas will come through, we'll recognise the role of inequality in global finance. But what happened in the wake of that crisis was a fatal split on the progressive wing, because on the one hand, you had kind of Occupy and the 1% movement, who were very radical and mobilised people, but possibly didn't have practical ideas And on the other hand, you had social democratic parties and governments who were a bit bewildered, trying to kind of hold on as the ground shifted beneath their feet. So these moments, these moments of inflection, these moments of political mobilisation are are incredibly important. Do you see elements of what's going on at the moment where 
where there are certain factors that could be very decisive in whether or not this tips the right way. Well, that's very interesting. Two two examples. I mean, obviously, uh, the AIDS crisis, its greatest threat was confined, then hit people who were in the everyday life of all of us. And that's what brought it to be a national and global cause. Although the global financial crisis is referred to as the global financial crisis, of course, it wasn't anywhere near as global as this crisis that we are living through at the moment. I mean, I'm struck by a couple of things. First of all, the result of the global financial crisis, the political consequence of the global financial crisis was occupied not by the Occupy movement, but by the so-called populists who used the financial crisis to demonize government, to demonize foreigners, to demonize quote-unquote elites, uh, the so-called politics of anger. Now, what's interesting about this crisis is that the politics of anger offers absolutely nothing. I mean, I can't tell you how crushing it is to live in a supposedly rational country. I'm not a citizen of the US, but I live in the US. And to see utter irrationality bellowing out from all sorts of pores morning, noon, and night. Uh, This is a response uh, that isn't just competing versions of the truth. It's uh, competing versions of day and night. It's parallel universes about where this comes from. And the the fragmentation of state response, the, the lack of state capacity, uh, the, the demonization of experts, uh, the conspiracy theories that are associated with it, those are literally going to lead to the killing of people, to people dying. And so I think one big question to, to answer is where do the so-called populists, where do the nativists go next? I think they go into a attempted Cold War with China, um, which whatever the depredations of the Chinese system and the Chinese response in December and January is no answer to the problems of the modern world. Of course, we have to compete with China, but we also have to cooperate with them. I don't think the Cold War is an option. Secondly, if you've listened to what President Trump has been saying, it goes with a demonization of international institutions, the World Health Organization, which, whatever its limitations, we actually need a stronger World Health Organization, not a weaker one as a result of this crisis. So point one, in answer to your point, what happens to the nativists and the populists? I think they go into overdrive. And it's an open question about the extent to which they find uh, an audience. It seems that Mr. Salvini in Italy has lost support. The AFD in Germany has lost support. Um, So maybe there is a a future where the politics of anger uh, runs up against the realities of a fact-based world. But I I think in in the United States, it's still a very open question. We'll see if the differential performance of different states produces some kind of reaction. Then secondly, there's the question of how do the alternative parts of the political spectrum respond? Do they respond by fragmenting or do they respond by uniting? That's an open question too. Uh, But I think that one thing that gives me cause for hope is that the way in which the crisis has prompted a, a puncturing of orthodoxies must be a good thing. And I think that that is something that uh, those of us who, who consider ourselves to be on the progressive side of the political spectrum need to try and exploit with an open-mindedness that is absolutely essential. I'm so glad you came to that point, though, because that's exactly where I've got to in my thinking, that take again that kind of 2007 and eight moment when there was such a big divide between the kind of radical left and the kind of establishment social democrats. And, and, and then that, that has played out 
for the decade since, and obviously in in the UK and the kind of polarisation within the Labour Party and also in the Democrats. It seems to me yeah, that... Let me just point on that, though. There's been a real rewriting of history, though. Let's just remember. I mean, this whole thing of it took Jeremy Corbyn to cure the Labour Party of its obsession with austerity. The Labour government was never for austerity. I mean, the deficit financing plan was never an austerity plan. We never bought into austerity. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right to raise it, but we've got to be absolutely clear that the demonization that came wasn't just from the right of foreigners, it was from the ultra-left of social democrats and other more mainstream centre-left thinkers. And that is a an absolute, has been a nightmare for the last decade. No, I mean, I, I completely get that. And you, you wouldn't be surprised as someone who worked with you in that, in that government that I defend it from kind of crude attacks. I guess what I'm saying is that picking up your previous point about orthodoxies, possibly in the kind of progressive space from the centre to the left. There is a recognition amongst practical people of the fact that we do need radical change and possibly a recognition from idealistic people that we've got to have practical solutions if we're not going to be defeated again. So if there is that possibility of a broader a broader alliance for change, if it had to mobilise around a particular set of things in your area, David, around kind of you know global justice, global governance, what would be the specific demands that you would want to put kind of front and centre of of such an alliance? Well, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I I really embrace your notion that we've got to open the shutters, that you can be radical and credible. And the way to do that is to be radical and practical. Let me just admit one thing and then answer the, the question. It's much easier, let's be honest, and you've written about this and thought about it deeply and probably more profoundly than I have, it's much easier to think radically and credibly locally than it is internationally, or at least it's much easier to think about how something radical could become real in your town and city and even country than it is to think about it internationally. The brain just, it's hard, harder. I think that you'd have to say the prospect of cities doing some amazing things on transport, housing, climate, jobs, work, mental health, that feels practical. Um, How you do those things globally is much less practical. But here's how I come at this, Matthew. You've got to start basics. Three billion people around the world have no access to running water in their own home. That is a clear and present danger to their health and their neighbor's health today. So point one for me would be we define the global basics in a serious way. People talk about universal basic income, but um, we've got to think rather more practically, I think, uh, than that, even though basic income may be part of the future. Secondly, the World Health Organization, actually, to be fair to them, have been talking about universal health coverage. I think we've got to give meaning to that. Uh, The statistic I gave you of three ventilators in the whole of South Sudan tells you that is not the place to start thinking about the definition of global universal health coverage. We've got to talk about universal health coverage as meaning something uh, meaningful for the lives that people are in. And that speaks to the plague of malnutrition that hits under fives and is the cause of half of all under five death around the world. So I think the universal health coverage has got to be given uh, meaning in a new way. I think thirdly, and don't worry, there aren't 33 things on this list. I'll stick to three just as part of my, um, my list-itis that I mentioned earlier. I see one of the greatest sources of regression from those global norms in the conflict and fragile states that we work in around the world. The truth is the world has got pretty good at tackling extreme poverty in stable states. Not good enough yet, unequal in all sorts of ways. India, China have huge inequality within their own countries, but there are. we've learned a lot in the last 20 years about how to tackle extreme poverty 
in stable states, in fragile and conflict states like Yemen, Syria, now formerly a middle-class country, like northeast Nigeria, nearly half of the world's extreme poor live in fragile and conflict uh, states. And there are very large numbers of people living there. Why? I would argue we're living in an age of impunity. We're living in an age when the norms and laws of war are being abused, and there is no accountability for that. And that's how you end up with 85 hospitals in northwest Syria being bombed and universal health coverage being impossible. It's how you end up with 18 million people in Yemen being dependent on humanitarian aid because the war has ravaged the country. And so I think that the battle to prevent the abuse of power, which is something that has marked the progress of Western industrialized societies over the last two or 300 years, that battle against the abuse of power is absolutely fundamental globally as well as locally. In the United States, there's a fight against the abuse of power by the Trump administration. Globally, combatants in war, dictators who are in power for 30 or 40 years, that battle to secure basic human rights means taking on the abuse of power. And I think that's the, I'd put that high on my uh, radical but practical wish list. Last question. I talked about if you want change, there has to be something, a capacity, a demand before the crisis, which the crisis then accelerates. Are the sustainable development goals that thing? Could it be that the crisis becomes the point at which we say it is no longer good enough that we assert those goals and have all the processes around them? And so many businesses, of course, have built them into the way in which they think about social responsibility. We've now got to be serious as a global community about what would have to be done in order to achieve those goals. Well, I um, have a, a real struggle with this. Because on the one hand, the 17 goals are magnificent. On the other hand, I've been in government long enough and you've been in government long enough to know the difference between a goal and an aspiration. A goal is something that disciplines policy. It leverages action. It holds people to account. It changes behavior. An aspiration is what politicians put into speeches for something that is a dream that they're not going to realize. My fear about the goals, the sustainable development goals, is that because they don't have what you and I called 20 years ago floor targets. Do you remember when we were thinking about uh, how to tackle inequality of opportunity, of educational opportunity, inequality of health access, inequality of access to employment? We talked about setting floor targets that ensure that as well as raising average levels of school performance or average levels of healthcare, we attended especially to the needs of those uh, at the bottom. The sustainable development goals fail to do that. And I think the learning is that we need to make the goals real goals that have actionable and accountable measures attached to them. If that's a lesson that comes out of this crisis, then it will be very positive because we'll then be able to say, look, the people who are falling most behind on healthcare are those who are caught up in conflict. And this is what a universal health coverage means for them. The people who are falling most behind in education. Three quarters of secondary school age refugees have no education, but there's no goal. There's no sustainable development goal target that speaks to their needs. The women and girls who are doubly, triply assaulted and attacked and disadvantaged in emergencies, there's a global sustainable development goal to women's equality. There's nothing practical, tangible that speaks to the defense of the interests of women and girls to keep them from early marriage, to keep them from abuse, to treat them after abuse in the sustainable development goals. So my learning would be, let's get the balance right between aspiration and practicality, and let's make the different parts of the global system accountable 
much more accountable for their actions to deliver on those goals. Otherwise, by 2030, we'll be looking at greater inequality between the extreme poor and the rest. So it seems to me that how we turn the sustainable development goals from goals to actionable plans, it would be very good work for people to be doing over the next few weeks and months in preparation for the opportunity which might exist at the end of this crisis. David Miliband, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And since you're not allowed out in your 77 degree heat, you can figure out the way to make the sustainable development goals actionable. I look forward to your blog with your reflections. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.